0: People will sit up and take notice of you if you will sit up and take notice of what makes them sit up and take notice. Is a quote from Harry Gordon Selfridge, the founder of Selfridge's department store in London and one of the most successful retailers in history. I thought this was a relevant quote for our guest today, someone who is leading one of the largest retailers. Today, our guest is Ian Bailey, Managing Director of Kmart Group, which comprises Kmart and Target operating over 450 stores across Australia and New Zealand, employing nearly 50,000 team members and with revenues of almost $10 billion. Prior to his appointment in 2018, Ian held various roles at Kmart Australia, including Managing Director, Chief Operating Officer and Chief Financial Officer, following his earlier career in the UK and his entry into retail with Office Works. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Limitations, a show where we speak to elite world-class performing men and women and unlock the secrets and influences that have shaped their destinies and that you could apply to your own life. For our first-time listeners from all over the world, please don't forget to follow on your preferred podcast platform and share with your friends and colleagues. And for our listeners in Fiji, Singapore, and Vietnam, a big hello. I am your host, Greg Robinson, managing partner of Blenheim Partners, board and executive search firm. Ian takes us through the evolution of Kmart, from a traditional discount store to embracing an innovative, modern, hybrid retail model, and in so becoming one of the most well-known and trusted brands. He shares with us the care and attention it takes to put the customer at the forefront of their mission, to remove unnecessary costs and give back, as well as the next retail revolution in a digital world and potential growth possibilities in the international market. So sit back and enjoy. Innovation, a necessity, not an option. Ian, welcome to the show. How does one go from studying civil engineering at university to become a chief executive officer of a top retailer?
1: Yeah. Well, I don't know. How does it happen? (laughs) Um, You know, one thing's for sure, when I left school, I wasn't thinking this was going to be my, my future life. But uh, I guess what you do is you, you accumulate knowledge and experiences, and I had quite a mixed career on the way through, and I, I accumulated a lot of a lot of, I say, different experiences, and then I found my way into retail, and yeah, I, I felt it felt like home, so uh, I really I really enjoyed it when I got there, and and I've just applied myself to that ever since, and was fortunate enough to get into the position that I've now got to, and and I absolutely love the role and and had a, a, you know, an incredible incredible time getting to this position.
0: So, Ian, do you mind sharing just for the audience' benefit the scale of the operation of Kmart?
1: Yeah, so uh, we're actually close to ten billion in terms of annual revenue. Uh, once we, uh, if you look at look at our business through the lens of a full year's trading without any COVID impacts, it's closer to a ten billion dollar number, which uh, which is what we're at. So, quite sizable. We've got like four hundred plus stores. We have two brands in terms of Kmart and Target within Australia. Kmart's also in New Zealand. We also have some businesses outside of Australia and New Zealand, which are more emerging, so they're new businesses we've just kicked off. We've got about 1,000 people in Asia, which not everyone would realise. We have uh, tech resources in Bangalore, as well as a lot of sourcing folk throughout China, Bangladesh, Indonesia, India, and Vietnam. So lots of of capability throughout those countries, and about 50,000 people in Australia and New Zealand. Of course, the vast majority of those are in our stores.
0: What makes a top retailer?
1: Yeah. It's a crowded market, isn't it? I mm. mean, you you know, you've got a lot of choice as a customer. I mean, whether it's online or in store. If you think about your, your local shopping mall, there's no shortage of places that you can go visit. Yep. So you, you need to mean something to your customer. And and the way we've always thought about it is, you know, when someone when someone gets out of bed in the morning and says, you know what, I need or I want that, we, we want them to think of us first. So to do that, we need to have we need to be better at what we offer than our competitors do. So in the case of Kmart, we, we really anchored our business on the lowest price, and we said we're going to win by being lower priced than everybody else. And, uh, and over time, we built a stronger and stronger business model that can deliver on that customer proposition to our end consumers, which is critical, but at the same time also can generate an adequate return to our shareholders.
0: What are we going into at the moment, Ian? It's going to be some tough times ahead, looks like.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Well, if any listeners have got got the answer to that question, we'd be very happy to hear from them. I think we're all trying to figure it out, aren't we, at the moment, because you've almost got this strange combination. We've got uh, customers that up until this point are still shopping with great vigour and and energy, and you would have seen through the last reporting season, lots of retailers actually pushed out very good numbers. Yeah. And uh, probably to the surprise of, of a lot of the market commentators who are out there. I think equally we know that you know we've had inflation for some time. We've got interest rates which are on the rise, continuing to rise. We've got a lot of fixed rate mortgages which are going to roll off in the not too distant future, and it feels like there's a tipping point that's going to come. Yep. Now, when is that tipping point? It, it seems like February was one of the months that was being called out as a potential. May is another one that's being called out, but it feels like it's it's imminent. So I think we're all trying to we're all trying to stay really nimble and balanced you know you think about a tennis a tennis player waiting to return serve they're up on their toes and they're active but they're not they're not sort of leaping in one direction or another it feels like that's what we're all trying to figure out at the moment so that we can adapt quickly when when and if that change does come
0: yeah look you're the lead indicator in, in the market for the economy right um, being a retailer and i'm just i just wanted to get your perspective of the broader economy as you highlighted i know everyone's trying to anticipate but you have got to plan 12 24 months ahead no doubt living in Australia is, is getting more and more expensive, particularly in the major cities. The cost of capital is going up significantly. We are going to have more interest rates. We're already starting to see, you know, delivery, for example, starting to home delivery starting to come off. That's starting to hit the um, hip pocket. So I guess, you know, maybe from your perspective, are we going to start seeing a change in the sales mix? Are we going to see different buyers and different people come to, to your stores? What, what are you anticipating?
1: Yeah, I think, first of all, for any business, you know, when you go into a different a different environment, there's a, there's almost a little bit of fear that comes along because there's change. But we would look at it through the lens of opportunity. When, when there's a disruption, there's actually, you know, there's more discontinuity in the market, I would say, than there is in periods of stability. And what you have is you have a period of winners and losers. So, uh, I, so I think there's a real opportunity here for market share gain yes. for the businesses that perform really well. Clearly, we would say we're in an awesome position for that, being a low-price player with consumers highly likely to trade down into uh, into lower price point items. Uh, so we feel like we're very well placed, and so we, re- we want to make sure we're really there for our customers when they when they need something, and, and we can we can encourage them to come to us as much as possible. If I was to look more broadly, how does this play out? We've still got a lot of positives. We've got very high employment within Australia. We do have wage inflation which is coming through, which will help offset some of those mm. some of those pressure points around costs of uh, cost of living increases. So I certainly don't feel like we're gonna head into, you know, this incredibly dark time. I just feel like it's gonna be a little bit more intense, a little bit more pressure, and there's real opportunity if we can execute well in this next period of time.
0: Okay, so you know, some of the pundits are saying US, Europe going into recession will be going into recession. And Australia might be very lucky to avoid you think that's going to be accurate, or
1: yeah, I'm not sure I could be Nostradamus an and predict that one accurately. But uh, <laughs> but it, what, we've seen, what we have seen what what have we seen so many times in Australia? We've seen recessions in Europe and the US, and Australia hasn't been there. Yeah. You know, I think we've still got a very strong resource sector as a nation, which which gives us some insulation, um, and and we've got a we've got a pretty resilient consumer base. Uh, that uh, that continues to spend. So we, we certainly do not see the same level of volatility that you see in the US or Europe yeah. when it comes to our economy. So uh, so I, I think if there is a slowdown for us, it'll be more moderate than we've seen in the US and Europe, but based on history and based on what we're seeing so far. And uh, I don't think there's any reason to be terribly pessimistic about the future. It feels more like a normal cycle that we're coming into post a uh, really peculiar COVID period.
0: Yeah, okay. I was, just, I was just looking at a lot of the technology companies the startup's are going to find it difficult to raise capital. And then the larger ones, as we've seen, are out, you know, are making severe cuts and will probably go deeper for a period of time. Flip side is, as you said a minute ago, China is coming back into play. And that's what's probably helped us a number of times over and looks like it's back on. No, it's just interesting to see where, where we are as a, and the guidance that we're getting. And how you plan with the guidance, that's that's all sort of getting a view of.
1: It's interesting how the market looks at this too, though, isn't it? And you mentioned technology. Yeah. And, you know, it, as we went into COVID, you know, technology co- a lot of technology companies were being valued much more on their revenue growth, their number of cons- their customers more so than Correct. their economic returns. Yep. And and then there was a switch that was flicked, which suddenly the market said economic returns are important. And a little bit like, you know, if you go back in time, I'm going to show my age here, but you won't go back to the dot com. Yes, yes it's right. Pretty much exactly the same thing happened, right? It was all about growth, 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 growth. And then somebody said, actually, profit's important. And then there was a reset of that, of that market. So it feels like it was a reset that probably is going to happen every now and again when you've got a market that was as hot as the technology market was. And then, of course, you've got the new technologies coming out. You know, the whole chat GPT and, and AI debate that's coming in is, uh, or, or topic that's now at play, it's changing the game. It's mm. a, it's another round of disruption, which is starting to hit some of the tech players as well. So there's a couple of dynamics at play, I think.
0: What about immigration, Ian? That's uh, we're starting to open up the doors there pretty rapidly. Is it coming in too fast, or how do you think it's being handled?
1: Yeah, well, here I am. You can probably tell from my accent, not born and bred in Australia. <laughs> so, and you know what a what a what a great move to for me personally to have made the choice to come and live in such an awesome country. Um, so, uh, you know, I think we are an immigrant nation. Um, I think it's one of the things that makes us great. Mm. You know, you go around our cities, they're some of the most multicultural cities on the planet. Um, and it gives us incredible diversity, it gives us incredible breadth. We're fortunate that we can attract the best and brightest around the world. So, we bring in incredible, incredible brains with great experience. And, and I think it's what we need as a, as a country to continue to compete on the global stage. We're small. We have to realise that not in geography, but in terms of numbers of people, twenty-five million does not really compete with the the Indians and the Chinas of the world. So we we just have to be like super good at, at what we do, and bringing in talented people, I think, is essential for us to continue to be a great nation.
0: Okay, so whereabouts in the UK you're from?
1: Um, I grew up in London, so I, I was in London until I was eighteen, then I then I moved to Manchester to go to university and lived there for eight years and moved around a bit after that, a bit of time in Nottingham and then back to London again before emigrating to Australia in the, in the late 90s.
0: Okay, and I think I read somewhere along the lines during your younger school days, you, there was consideration of being a professional tennis player?
1: Yeah. How good? Our good, our good consideration or? <laughs> oh, you found out about that. How <laughs> well, good were you? Uh, well, you know, uh, I was pretty good on my street. <laughs> <laughs> No, I got to about number six in the in in the UK under eighteen.
0: Yeah, that's pretty impressive.
1: Um, well, yeah, but the UK wasn't the strongest tennis nation on the planet, which doesn't help. I got, I got so far. I got a junior world ranking and a few other things. But you know, at eighteen, I looked, at, I looked at myself. I was, I was like five foot eleven, not six foot three, which most of the tennis players were. So I wasn't quite as athletic. Um, I don't think my mind was as strong, if I'm really honest, okay. at that age. And you look at, you know, you look at a Djokovic or yeah. a Nadal. I mean, their minds are like fortresses, aren't they? I mean, they're just extraordinary how resilient they are at such a young age. Is incredible. And then, of course, they're good tennis players too. I think I had the good tennis player a bit. I just needed some of the other things to really make it. So, so I made the call at 18 that maybe I shouldn't spend any more of mum and dad's money and I should probably go and, uh, you know, get, get some education and, and, and look after myself.
0: Okay. So civil engineering was where you, you pursued? Yeah. And then what, you uh, part of that fairly swiftly afterwards or what happened?
1: Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, it's not an uncommon story, is it? I mean, how, how many kids know what they want to do? Uh, and, of course, my whole game plan was to go and play tennis. And then suddenly I thought, you know, maybe I need to do something different. My, my brother had already been through uni. He was five years older. still it's not surprisingly. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and his, um, yeah, he did air and engineering. And I, 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 was, I was studying maths, economics, and physics at the time at school. So I, I just sort of fell into it. But it wasn't a game plan. And then halfway through my degree, I realized, you know, I don't really fancy this. It's not really me. Uh, but equally, I didn't want to go back to start all over again. So I thought, let's finish the degree and, uh, and go and earn some money.
0: All right. And you also qualified as accountant too, from what I understand.
1: Yeah, well, that was my next stop. I mean, my next stop was going into accounting. So I, I could effectively go into an accounting firm, uh, get my accounting qualification whilst uh, whilst being an employee. Yeah. So so it saved me having to go back for, for, to do another degree and and you know all the costs that come along for right with that.
0: Was there a genuine interest in business or was this... Uh I'll be. I'll, I'll pursue finance because it covers all bases.
1: Yeah, I wish I could tell you had all these wonderful plans, <laughs> but no. I, I think it was. I didn't really like the engineering side of it much, and, yeah. and it was a way of getting another qualification and, and earning money. And and to be honest, I didn't really know what it was. You know, my family wasn't. You know, my mum and dad didn't come from university backgrounds, and you know, so dad was a printminder on Fleet Street, which oh, basically yeah. means he sat by the machines as they printed newspapers overnight. Yep, and if they went wrong, you fix them. And a mum was mum was a secretary, so you know, so it wasn't like our family was talking about you know how to be a lawyer, how to be an accountant, how to be a doctor. It wasn't it wasn't a conversation around dinner table. So so to a degree, I, I sort of had to throw myself into things and then figure out what it was and, and adjust from there.
0: Okay, so what did you throw yourself? In? Because it sounded like you you tried a few things in your younger days.
1: Yeah, well, I stayed with the accounting firm for five years, so I actually did a, a reasonable stint there. Um, and then I, then I sort of started to experiment. I, I traveled quite a lot, actually, outside of work. So I, I took a year off and, uh, you know, got my backpack and went, went around the world, had a wonderful time for a year. Um, then I got into different businesses. I got into healthcare, technology, um, sometimes in finance-based roles, sometimes in sales roles, sometimes sometimes consulting. Okay. So it was uh, – I reckon there was a period of about six years where I was pretty much not in the same job for more than about eight months or 12 months Okay. whether that was through changing jobs within the company or changing companies. You know, when I look back at it in hindsight, it's been one of the great, you know, fortunes of my life. The great, I, was, well, I think I was very lucky now. Mm. You know, it just gave me this ability to amass so many different experiences in a really short space of time. And when you get to a, an MD job or a CEO job, you've got to have context for so many different topics that somehow you need to have got exposure to those in your journey to to enable you to be effective in your role.
0: So how did you get to Australia?
1: Um, by plane, yeah. <laughs> not by boat. Yeah, and, was, not quite that odd. And that was <laughs>
0: and that was through a uh, transfer, or was that through a backpacking expedition?
1: Yeah, no, good question. I um, actually, I, got for, I first got placed out here with a tech company I was working with. I, so this was this was one where I did I did sort of force it a little bit. I was uh, I was running their consulting team in the UK. It opened up a business in Australia. It wasn't going very well, uh, and I went to the managing director at the time and said, you know, why don't I go over there and run that for you? And uh, which he said, yes. Yeah. So two weeks later, I was here. That was in the mid nineties. Okay. Uh, I was here for twelve months. That business was an abject failure. I hastened to it, and I closed it down. Was part of my job. is <laughs> <laughs> one of one of those ones where you, you get to the country as it was here. I got into Melbourne, and uh, so then I did the first thing was I scanned the market to see what the competitors are like, and the, and the competitor had ninety percent of the market and had better technology than we did. Didn't make for a good business. <laughs> no, no. But, uh, but I, I learned to love Melbourne through that experience, and uh, then I applied for permanent residency. Yeah, okay. Uh, so, when I went back to the UK, applied. It took a couple of years to come through, so I came through as a skilled migrant. And uh, yeah, in the late 90s, packed my stuff into a container, got on a plane, and came out here to get a job.
0: Okay. And commencement into Retail Australia?
1: Yeah, that was 2002 into, into Officeworks. Hmm. Was my first foray. So how, you know, how did that happen? How does someone who's got like engineering, finance, consulting <laughs> end up in you know CFO of a retail business? Officeworks was going through uh, ERP replacement. It was SAP at the time, oh, yeah. and the, the MD of the time was looking for you know, looking for a senior exec, the CFO, who had experience at um, uh, yeah at sponsoring, chairing, leading such a big change program. And within my within my previous work, I'd implemented ERPs a couple of times as a consultant. So I came with the, you know, if you like the financial background as well as the the tech implementation background, but without retail, and and they were willing to take a risk on me on having those first two components, and and they, they gambled on I'd learn the third, which is clearly what I did.
0: Pretty unusual in Australia. A lot of the time, they're very very conservative. I'm sure you've seen that, and that you've got to tick three out of three nine times out of ten, or at least have the retail background to get through the front door. Less so, say in the UK, but very much so in in, in Australia and sometimes. Know, we're penalised as a result. I think. I'm just in your perspective because that's that's definitely a terrific support for yourself and a, and a great bet by that that CEO.
1: It's funny. I, I do agree with you. We're probably guilty about ourselves when we hire. Like, we want Superman or Superwoman. You know, <laughs> with with uh, with with all the components. I think what we've learned over the years is actually if we've got if we've got the right foundations and the right uh, and the right character with the with the right aptitude and the right skill sets. Then you know what they're going to hit the ground. They're going to learn really fast, and they're going to adapt um, on the way through. And you know, and it's, it's just funny, right? Because you think about Australians as a society, and you think about the strength of Australian leaders. You know, not just here in Australia, but on the global stage, uh, it's one of the it's one of the standout qualities is the is the ability to innovate and adapt. Mm. Uh, and I'd say Australian leaders, as as much if not more so than anywhere on the world, are incredibly strong at that. And yet, you have this somewhat conservative underbelly when it comes to hiring. So it is a little yeah, a little odd when you when you look at uh, so many of the characters who are out there who are so capable.
0: Very much so. What made you stay in retail? Like you said, you've tried a few different things. You've got this first decent role in, in retail. Someone's back to you. A lot of change going on. You're rolling out, as you say, SAP. But you decided to stay in, in the game.
1: Yeah, it's such an interesting, well, I found it. Clearly, I've got to give this from my perspective. It's such an interesting industry. <laughs> Um, the first thing is no one no one who comes into it says, you know, when they was when they were eight years old, when I grow up, I want to be a retailer. You know, fireman maybe <laughs> astronaut, but uh, you know, I want to be a retailer It doesn't generally come up on the list. So most of us, most of us land in here by accident. Now for some of us we enter when we're at school, we start working in a store and 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 uh, you know, work our way through the system never leave, and you got other people like me that drop in halfway through the process and uh, also you know, falling in love with it and, and stay. So why is it? What is it that's attractive? I think it's this combination of execution and strategy. So some businesses I've been in, is just all execution. Others, it's all strategy. And this one, you've got to get both right. And then when you've got get both right, then you've got to get the people aspect right because 50,000 people is a lot. Yeah. And and so you, the only way you can be successful if those 50,000 people sort of line up in the right direction <laughs> and sort of work together well enough um, on the way through that you can actually achieve your objectives. So, I think within all of that, what you get is an incredible amount of complexity. Complexity in an everyday context. I'm, I feel like I'm giving you a few random comments here, but let's see if it hangs together. But, uh, and because we are we're everyday people in our business, you can, you can tell by my background, someone who's got, you know, got lucky on the way and, and found himself in a really good job, but didn't come from a privileged background. That is so true of so many people within our organisation. And and so we're constantly looking for ways. How do we make the complex simple? How do we navigate some of these really tricky questions and then break it down to something that everybody can grasp and everybody can, can buy into? And that's really satisfying when you get to that level of comprehension and that level of understanding that you can help break this down to, to something which everybody can really engage in.
0: Yeah, it's quite addictive, isn't it?
1: It is. That's and, and you think about how much these businesses change now. I mean, even in the time I've been in retail, so I've been here since 2002 when I joined Officeworks. Yeah. You know, at that time, it was pretty much buy stuff and sell stuff and try and keep customers happy, make a bit of money. Yeah. Um, quite a big topic, as we all know. A cyber yeah. would be another one out there. Even government relations and how to, how to manage the, the changing legislative environment. Yep. So you, you name them, right? There's just so many things now which are on our plate we, we need to grapple with.
0: Yeah, and the other tough thing, I guess, in retail, you, you can't hide, can you? They as good as yesterday's numbers.
1: No, it does. It does. It does. Um, it's it, does tough make, it does make it for a funny life, laugh, though. <laughs> let, let me go to the positive, because uh, yeah, you could go to an early grave if it really bothered you. I think, <laughs> <laughs> I think the um, I think the nice thing is one of the things I always love about this business is uh, no. So here we are, we're chatting, and which is lovely to lovely to have a conversation. Meanwhile, customers are coming in and buying stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, I love that. Uh, when, when I was in consulting, nobody was buying stuff when I was chatting to somebody else. You had to be out there selling, and it was much more binary whether you got revenue, whether you didn't get revenue. Where we know people are going to shop tomorrow, and and then the question is, how good are we relative to the market that they choose us over other people? And and so I think this is—it comes back to this: this purity of strategy is really important because you have to differentiate, you have to be different to others. But at the same time, you've got to execute to a very, very high standard. And those two things are unusual combinations to have. You know, generally teams and people are good at one of those more so than the other. Go back to your question, what makes a great retailer? Great proposition and then executing, like, as a at a high level without question is, is a key part of it.
0: I'm going to come to it a bit later, but I might ask you just now, actually. You mentioned differentiate. That means that, okay, somewhere along there's got to be ideas put forward. It's got to be innovative or whatever the case is, the language you want to use. Yep. Where does the point of differentiation come from? How much is external? How much is it from the old consulting houses? How much is it from people in the team putting up ideas? How much is it the exec team sitting out and pushing somewhere and bouncing ideas off each other? How, how do you formulate it?
1: Yeah, it's a very good question. We can come back to the, the Kmart story and, and some of that in a second, but I'd say yep. what's the guiding principle? It's got to be customer. I know it's a cliche to say that, but if I look at businesses which are successful, they've understood the customer in a way that other people have not. So, therefore, they've deviated from the, from the masses, if you like, or from their competitors. They've taken a different path, and they've taken that different path because they've got a different understanding of the, of the end consumer or the end customer, and then, of course, they build out capabilities which other businesses don't have, and in, in the end, they win. And, and that was very much the journey that, uh, that Kmart went down. Kmart also had history because we were a business that had been around for, like, 40-odd years, so there was a lot of history in the business. We could look back in time to see when was the business great and when it was great, what was it doing, So we sort of had a reference point in the past. If you're a startup, of course, you don't have that same reference point, but you still need to have that same customer insight that gives you that unique perspective. And and I think if you look at any of the really great businesses around the world, they figured something out that other people haven't, and then they've just got so good at it that it's almost impossible for people to catch them.
0: On that end, who does lead the way? Is it the customer or you providing that lofty thing over there that's going to draw the customer?
1: It's the customer leads the way without question because it's, we, we can't we can't manufacture demand that the customer doesn't want um, in the first place. However, does the customer know what doesn't exist? Exactly. But, so therefore, it comes back to what it's, but it's, there's an underlying need which you've understood, which has always been there in the customer. So that, it's just the, the manifestation of the solution is new, but the need has been there for a long period of time. People have always wanted low prices. It's not a new concept. What we did though was we we put all our energy into making sure that we we did that better than anybody else within our market, and so we sacrificed other things. If you want to be awesome at something, go back to school. Right? If you if you if, you, if you're studying eight subjects, I mean, there's some very brainy people out there that can be really good at all eight subjects. You know, if you're if you're a bit more normal, and you want to be really good. You, you've got to study at one or two of them, and maybe not study quite so hard at some of the others. I'm not sure that's great advice for anybody who's studying, by the way. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you, uh, hopefully, hopefully, you get what I mean. If you, you know, to get really good at something, you've got to focus, and that the strategy is the clarity that enables you to focus.
0: Okay. You made the move across to Kmart. you want to talk us through that. Why?
1: Yeah, I, I'd done four years in office work, I had a wonderful time. Uh, really, really enjoyed it, and I just felt ready for the ready for the next change. And uh, very different. Officeworks at the time was a wonderful business. Um, Still is, by the way. Uh, Wonderful business that was growing so fast. We were just basically rolling out stores and profit was growing faster than revenue. It was, you know, (laughs) it was, you know, sometimes you get these magic windows in your career and uh, where you just land somewhere at the right time and the right, anyway, it was the right time, right place. Performed really well. And then I got the opportunity to go to Kmart, which was much bigger. Yeah. In terms of scale, a business that was more troubled. Our business had been on about $4 billion of revenue for about a decade. It, it made a little bit of money, you know, not much. And there was a big question mark as to what's the future of the business. So in terms of the challenge, you know, really, really significant. I also got the chance to work with, um, with Larry Davis, who was the MD at the time, who had uh, like retail legend status. When I joined the business, he'd just come out of Target. He, he'd been phenomenally successful there. And I thought, what an opportunity to go and learn retail from somebody who just oozed retail, uh, which, which Larry did.
0: What stood out with Larry then? What defined Larry as a great retailer?
1: Yeah, he was, um, well, certainly one thing he had was passion and enthusiasm. I'm sure Larry wouldn't mind me saying this. I mean, at times he could be a little crazy. <laughs> so, so we certainly had some interesting times as we, uh, as we navigated, our, navigated our journey. But what he, what he came with, he came with product. He, he loved product. And what he he taught me was the importance of the product offer. And if you you do look at a business like Kmart, whilst we have wonderful stores, wonderful team members, we have great factories, great sourcing, great technologists, great marketers, unless we have good product, it doesn't work. It's the fundamental element of who we are as a business is for any retailer. Your product and price offer has to be amazing. And my experience with him, he taught me that. And that, that was a super valuable lesson because sometimes you can get lost in all the other stuff, uh, all the other important things that need to get done and not realize, yeah, you can be A-grade at some of those other things, but unless the product's right, you haven't got a business.
0: And also during your career, and you, move, you moved out of finance to operations, not everyone can do that?
1: Yeah, I never really saw myself as an accountant, though. I mean, I know I've got their qualification. but a bit like, I, never, I don't really see myself as an engineer. I would have liked to see myself as a tennis player, but as we talked about, that didn't work out. <laughs> Okay. So, yeah. So, I think when you look at it through that lens, yes, I did move from the CFO role to the uh, to an operations role. But if you look, if for those that worked with me when I was when I was uh, in the CFO position, I was not the technical finance person thinking about accounting standards. You know, I always had super strong teams. Uh, And if if I was to go back in time to when I got that move into COO from, from from CFO, I had an amazing team at the time. Uh, so, I had six direct reports. Uh, one of them became, subsequently became a managing director. The other five became general managers. So, it, it meant the day job I really wasn't doing because I had a team of people to do the day job for me because they were so capable. So, I went to score on merchandise for about two years prior to me moving into COO. So, okay. I used to sit in the merchandise reviews. I spent time with the GM of merch uh, on where, where the product was going, uh, where, yeah, how we were going to evolve the product offer, how we we're going to evolve pricing strategies. So by the end of that two years, I felt like I'd done my apprenticeship in merchandise. I was never gonna I was never gonna be as good as a buyer who'd come through the system. I'm yeah. not gonna be a subject matter expert, but I, I had the I had the understanding of the important elements, the strategy and how to execute within within the merchandise field. So I think if there's if there's anything I would you know I'd suggest to anyone is, you know, build great teams. It gives you capacity to go and learn more stuff.
0: How do you build a great team?
1: I think it goes back to yeah, it goes back to that conversation we had a little earlier on. I definitely think you've got to find people with the right the right aptitude. So I, I love people who are humble. Uh, I think ego is a real problem uh, if you're looking at team-based environments and something like a retail is so team-based because uh, you, you need combinations of people to work together to get outcomes. Mm-hmm. And ego is friction in relationships. It makes It makes it much harder. So people who are humble, really important. People who are willing to get right in so, uh, you know, we're, we're not presidents here where we sit in the stands watching the, watching the game or watching the show. We, we, you know, we're on the field. So people that are happy to get in, get their hands dirty, really important. Uh, they've got to want to learn. Uh, and it's learning cadence because there's so much to learn. They've got to have this desire and this, this almost hunger to figure out what's going on, to want to yeah. get in and really, really get it. Yeah, yeah, and then occasionally technical expertise. You know, it sort of helps if you're running supply chain that you know what distribution centers are. So there's times you need some technical expertise as well because of the nature of the role. But uh, we generally I prioritise the, the attributes and the core capabilities as long as the technical pieces are adequate.
0: Okay. And also during this period of time, Kmart acquires Target. Can you talk us through the history, the thinking, the execution of that, and what the outcome longer term will be?
1: This was a little different. It wasn't quite an acquisition. So, obviously, we were all owned by West Farmers. And historically, what we had is we had Target and Kmart were run independently as two independent divisions, yep. originally under Coles Group and subsequently under West Farmers. And what there was was there was a lot of unnecessary competition. So, if I just give you one example, you can take real estate and leasing. You know, we, we were we're both 5,000-square-metre stores, uh, both in shopping malls. Needless to say, we would end up pitching against ourselves and pushing rents up. Because one business would want it and the other business would want it, even though we're in the same company, West Farmers. Uh, I use that one as a nice, simple example. There's other examples out there as well where we, we we effectively came into unnecessary conflict. So the view was actually, you know what, you're sort of one category in terms of in terms of the types of retail that you are. You're different businesses. We want to keep you as two separate businesses, but you should be in one group. Okay. So in 2016, the businesses were brought to, together in one group so that uh, so that we could then manage them in combination. Yeah, we still run them quite separately. So I've got Richard Pearson, who's the, the, the managing director of Target, and I've got John Galtieri, who's the CEO of Kmart. So we still run them as two organizations quite independently. But what we do is we have people like myself and my CFO, Alex Vaseska, who make sure that we don't you know, shoot ourselves in the foot or overcompete for no value between the two businesses.
0: But you're known for reinvention. What does that actually mean?
1: The challenge with retail is it's not a secret business. Take one of the the healthcare companies that's producing new drugs. I'm sure there's a lot of R&D that sits in labs, which nobody can find, or they try and hide away, probably quite successfully. Retail's not like that. You can just walk in. (laughs) And, and in fact, we want people to walk in most of the time uh, and come shopping. So, therefore, uh, whenever we come up with a strategy and execution, it's immediately visible. So unless we're on a constant path of improvement and evolution, we just get imitated and overtaken. So innovation is a necessity. Yeah. Okay. It's not an. It's not an option. It's a necessity. The example I like the best here is some of the pop stars. When you think about some of the all-time greats. So like let's just take David Bowie as an example. You know, or Madonna. You know, they've they've got this ability to be themselves and yet find their next iteration of who they are. And it's really a mark, isn't it? Sometimes those. Uh, those changes which they go through on their journey. Now, I'm not sure ours has been quite so marked, but but equally we can't fall in love with who we were. And um, We can't fall in love with some of the things that made us successful in the past because, you know, they might need to change. They might need to iterate. They might need to evolve. So we, we very much have an eye on the future. We very much have an eye on There's no, there's nothing sacred within the organisation uh, beyond a couple of things, which I can come back to. And therefore, we're going to constantly focus on performance, and what, and what and how do we how do we serve our customers to a, to a better level than we have in the past?
0: But you shifted in product too, right? What you've developed as an organisation, you've shifted in your sourcing. You know, to we make do. sure you kept the pricing, as you say, is, is a key differentiator.
1: It comes from one overarching question. You know, how do we how do we deliver products to customers at the lowest possible price? So that was the question. And and then we had a secondary piece of that. How do we do that without any compromise? And I think that was the the amplifier of our strategy. You think about discount stores, they're generally warehouses. Yeah. They're generally got all these visual cues to tell you the product's cheap. And what we went to is actually we don't want that. We want customers we don't want customers to feel cheap, basically. We Mm. want customers to feel smart. So just, and for them to feel smart, they can't feel like they're compromising on the quality. They can't feel like they're compromising on the style. They can't feel like they're compromising on the ethics uh, in the way that the product was made. So this idea of no compromise while hitting lowest price comes out. So how do you do that? You have to get right into, it goes back to having those leaders that get into the detail. You have to figure out, well, where does things really cost money and where doesn't it? And if you take something like, uh, let's take something basically like a t-shirt. What makes a great t-shirt? Well, if you, number one, does it fit? You know, fit's actually quite a complicated topic and anybody who's in the apparel industry out there will, will get, trying to get a t-shirt to fit across all the size curves that you have in the market is not, not a straightforward thing. However, it doesn't cost you more to make a t-shirt that fits well versus one that fits badly. Okay. And then you take colour. Black and white are always going to be the same, but you're always going to have, you know, fashion colours that come in and out. Picking the right colour is, is super important. Is the fabric the right quality that is durable? It will wash and the colour won't fade. You, you get the idea, right? Most of these things don't cost money. They cost care and attention. And if you've got a deep enough understanding of the process, then you can just say, how do I strip out all the unnecessary stuff between the product being made and the end consumer? And so that's what we set mission amb- on, removing all the unnecessary costs. So if I was to give you an example, when we started the journey, we were often buying, even if we bought an own brand product, So bought something that was just sold in Kmart. We would work with an agent who was based in Australia. That agent would work with an agent based in Hong Kong who would work with an agent probably based in China somewhere. So you've got three multipliers of profit before the product gets to us. We just said, let's go to the factory. And astonishing, astonishing how much money comes out. When you do go to the factories, what you see, you see these rows, particularly parallel factories, you see these rows of um, of sewing machines. Mm -hmm. And at the end of each row, there's a retailer name. Is a brand name yeah. Right. With, that sits at the top because virtually none of us use one factory solely. we don't have a hundred percent use of a factory we share the factories with multiple other retailers
0: and yet we're buying all this similar product
1: but these retailers are i'm not going to i clearly won't use names because it wouldn't be appropriate but yep. the, these are all the retailers that you'll find in the shopping mall or a lot of them um selling products 10 times maybe more than than kmart does yep in the exactly the same factory made by the same people
0: Well, that's the art of branding and marketing, all the other stuff that we uh, get tied into, isn't it? The salesmanship.
1: Yeah. So what we said was we've got a different philosophy here because we're going to make beautiful products and uh, the team have done an incredible job over the years. And every time we figure out how to save money, we're going to drop the price. Most people go the other way. Most people say, if I can make more beautiful product, how much more can I charge for it? Yeah, right. And that's just extended and extended and extended our lead. Uh, relative to the market over time, because our products continues to improve and our prices continue to fall, and so of course the delta to our competition grows. And you know, Kmart will be uh, will be close to an eight billion dollar business this year in its own right. Target is a bit more than two, so it gives us the ten billion. When I started at Kmart, we were a four billion dollar business, so we've doubled the size of the business in that period of time at prices that are way lower than when we started. So as you can imagine, we've way more than doubled the amount of units that we sell every year.
0: And you mentioned the word ethical. How bad is it in retail?
1: I actually think retail's come a—you know—it's come a long way. I actually don't think it's bad. I spent a lot of time in the sourcing world. So when I, when I was uh, chief operating officer, one of my areas of accountability and still is is sourcing. So I, I got to Asia pretty much once a month for about eight years. So I, I would have seen hundreds and hundreds of factories um, over time, and and how they've evolved. And, and, you know, there's been some horrors in, the, in history. So Rana Plaza would be one, which was in Bangladesh, which was yeah. uh, which is a horrific incident. Nothing to do with us, I hasten to add. We weren't in that. We were not in that facility. But we could have been. That's a, that's the reality. You know, you when you operate in any market, right, there's always a and, – and so that, that moment in time really galvanised us too. We've got a couple of choices here. We either move out of these markets. We concluded very quickly that was the wrong thing to do. There is so much benefit from – Retailers like us, international brands being in these markets to help give their economy growth. And somewhere like, you know, we'll just look at China. I mean, China, one of the great powerhouses of China has been its manufacturing. Mm-hmm. And look how wealthy that country has become. It's like a case study for how you take a, a country out of poverty to make it a wealthy country. And it's been done through manufacturing as one of the great levers. And you, and you see it in places like Bangladesh, much earlier on in its journey. But they well also that country is growing because of their biggest export, which is clothing. The clothing industry drives export more than anything else. Yeah, so I think I think when you when you look at ethics and how products are made, we got into that really quickly because we said we've got a we've got a, a moral obligation to ensure that people who are working on our products are treated well, they're paid appropriately. And so we implemented our own ethical sourcing standards, so we scoured the world and, and we came up with what we thought was the most appropriate. We yeah. ha- we have direct access to our factories, so we have people in the factories. So we are not relying on a third party auditor; we're in there checking ourselves, okay. and not just on a one-off audit on an ongoing basis. So we've got we've got this live view. Then we said, okay, well, how do we tell our customers about this? So we we were the first ones to publish um, our factory lists, certainly on mass of the of the large retailers within Australia. We were we were the first to sign up to the the Accord on Building Safety in Bangladesh, which was. The, the collaboration between unions and retailers and brands after Rana Plaza to help improve the building standards within uh, within Bangladesh. We've joined numerous numerous things over the years with the view that we've got to make a difference in these countries in which we operate. And, you know, I can put a hand on my heart, having been there for the last decade, that the, the change is extraordinary.
0: You're listening to No Limitations with special guest Ian Bailey. In our next episode, I sit down with Joseph Healy, co-founder and chief executive officer of Judo Bank? Well, we
1: always said, we're not going to get into this having a plan B. We're going to have a plan A and we're going to make it work. And nothing in life worth doing is easy. You know That's the one thing I've learned, and I would say most people have learned who've been successful, that very rarely in life does it come to you. But the harder you work at something, then the more luck opportunities for luck you create. Be sure to join us on the next episode,
0: and now back to the show.
1: Take a country like India. Yep. I mean, 10 years ago, you know, was, were we really thinking India was going to be one of the top two, probably top two countries in the world in terms of GDP? Uh, maybe a minimum top three. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, probably not. But that country is like motoring at the moment. Mm. And when I was I had, the, I had the hiatus over COVID where we couldn't travel, went back to Delhi and gone. And my goodness, it's like, it's like in that three years, the country has just continued to to accelerate. Now, manufacturing was a big part of India in the early days. Clearly, they moving yeah. to technology and into other areas now. But uh, but yeah, you see this you see this incredible growth over time in the countries that we work with. And it gives me great confidence that, that we are a contributor to helping move a lot of these countries out of poverty.
0: COO to MD? Was I ready? Well, it's, it looked like on paper, but I don't know you. Were you were you ready? Were you ready for the step up? Not ready like, now. You know,
1: as the, the other question. <laughs>
0: well, you know, the the growth looks outstanding. What's been achieved from from the organisation? Yeah, I
1: managed to keep the job for a few years, so so far so okay. good. I'd say yes and no. Yes and no. I, I, I was CFO for a quite a number of years in different businesses, so I had a lot of financial experience, and um, I, I had eight years as a chief operating officer. Uh, running the operations and my boss at the time gave me a lot of freedom. So even the areas I didn't run I was I was very close to. So I felt I felt more like deputy MD than I was COO, particularly in the last two or three years. And so then when I went went into the role, I thought it won't be that big a junk. Um, and I was wrong. Even though I was in that ready to go position, you know, you suddenly there's no there's no sanction there.
0: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, <laughs>
1: anything, anything the organisation doesn't know what to do with lands with you <laughs> on any topic that happens to come up. So, uh, so no, I, I remember peddling pretty hard for the first uh, for the first couple of years when I, when I got into the role to try and settle in, made sure as ever got the right team around me because you pretty you figure out pretty quickly where have I got the right the right support base, where have I got the right characters who who I can lean on, who can help me when I don't know what to do. Um, on a topic, and can give me really sound advice, um, and can also run the business and execute well.
0: So, just on that, Ian, you're swift when you make those decisions.
1: Yes, yes, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Logic, logic mm. and belief. Logic takes time, belief is quick, and I generally go with belief. So, if I if I feel, if it feels wrong, I'll generally generally act. Yeah, right. Which you know, coming out of a, you wouldn't think of coming out of a financial background, but. You know, it's so easy to procrastinate, you know, because you can think through all the reasons why not, the risks, the, the challenges, the, yeah, but I might not have, you know, the, the right person lined up or whatever it happens to be. But, you know, what's, what's the old saying? If you make a change and the next person comes in so much better than the previous, no one says, I, I wish I'd waited longer to make that decision.
0: So when you took on the role, Ian, in your mind, what were you going to change or what was good going to look like yeah, over the next five, six years?
1: Do you mind if I just round out that last conversation just on, on people? Because sure. we're, we're talking about one end of the spectrum, which is when someone really doesn't work out. That's the last port of call for me. My, my first port of call is how can I develop? And so one of the things I work super hard on is, you know, my, my team would, I'm sure would, would replay this. I do like to give a lot of feedback. It's purely from a perspective of I want them to be the best that they can be. And my job as their leader is to is to help coach, guide, stretch, um, and, and encourage them to want to be the best that they can be as well. And I think you so see, you've got those two elements, if you if you're trying to bring all of your leaders up on the journey, and then if you find, if one of them doesn't quite make it for whatever reason, and you supplement, it's still a very it's still a very powerful model. And if you look at the Kmart business, we've got so many execs which have been with us for about 15 years. Equally, we've got a number of execs which have been with us less than 12 months. But one thing's for sure, you cannot share everybody all the time. You've got no business then. You need really good people that really understand DNA of the organisation, understand that if you pull this lever, this is what's going to happen. And so I, I, I highly value people that we've kept and have, and have dedicated their, their time to Kmart for the last 15 years. It's, it's incredibly powerful.
0: So just on the practical side, Ian, just how you say you, you spend the time with your people to bring them up, what does that look like? Is that meeting one-on-one? Every week, meeting once every two weeks. I mean, just in practical terms, how do you do it? Because you've got a tight diary.
1: It depends on the person. If I think about my own leaders at the moment, you know, some of the team we might really speak once a month in detail for a whole host of reasons. But when we do get together, it's for you know, might be for two days, and we cover a lot of ground in that period. There's others I speak to daily. So I very much try and adapt to my leaders. Because, uh, you know, versus they have to force them to comply with me. I'm sure there's a few things they do if they're listening. <laughs> uh, I'm, not, I'm not quite that benevolent, but uh, but but equally I know that if I'm trying to communicate with someone, the more I can do it on their terms in a way that they easily digest, then the more chance it's going to be heard and the more chance they're going to act. So I very much try and adapt to the, the, the character and the nature of, of each of my leaders.
0: Are you a visionary leader then?
1: I don't think I'd call myself visionary. I'm considered, as you can probably tell. Um, I try try and be quite human and, you know, be just like a normal person versus being some idiot who gets a bit carried away with themselves in the top job. But equally, you need to hold the business to standards. You need to, at times, you need to set a course which is not commonly commonly supported because otherwise you do consensus leadership and that's pretty dangerous. So there's times, times the business needs needs me to step up and say, okay, we're going left instead of right because we've hit a fork in the road. And then you just make the call. Once you said you're going left, we're going to make left work no matter what. And, and it provides that clarity. So I think there's times where I'd say maybe there's a yes there. Uh, but as you can tell, it doesn't sit comfortable with me being called that. I don't, I don't see myself as that. I see myself just doing the job I need to do. When it needs to be done, and I do what the business needs when the business needs it.
0: So, Ian, just on that, when have you had to call left or right?
1: Yeah, I mean, on our, on our product journey, we made some pretty big calls uh, when we were going to own brand. So, if you're, yeah. so if you think about our offer, we pretty much, we pretty much re-engineered the whole store. So, if if this was a construction project, this would be like a construction project in the city where they keep the fascia of the building. They knock down the whole thing inside, and then they build a brand new building, you know, on the back of the of the fascia. So from the outside, it looks like it's the same. From the inside, it's fundamentally different. It's pretty much what we did when we uh, when we re-engineered the uh, uh, the Came Up business. You can't do that with lots and lots of small iterations. Even again, you've got to take a big step. And to take a big step requires uh, organizational courage, and it requires safety for the people making the big step. Otherwise, the risk is too great. So uh, a couple of examples for you that I can give you. We figured out that our own brand underwear sold really well. At the time, 50% of our sales in underwear were Kmart products, 50% were one of the best known brands in the market, I won't say the name. Yeah. And, um, and we made the decision to derange the, the brand. So effectively, we, we risked 50% of the sales mm. um, in, in, that, in that move. Now, we, we worked with the buying teams on that and we gave them the compass said, we, we know the sales are going to go backwards, but we're betting on, and our view is, there'll be a dip with a, with a big acceleration. And so your job is to get the acceleration. So whatever the step down becomes, your job is to accelerate fast beyond it. And that's your mission. And the team did a wonderful job, incredible job of figuring it out. And uh, our underwear business went from strength to strength. It's like way bigger than it ever was. When we had the brand in our business, the, the offer was so much simpler for the for the end customer because we didn't have two of everything. We didn't have the Kmart one and the branded one. We just had the one, which meant we could put more volume behind it, which meant we could get a lower cost price, which meant we could drop the retail price. And things that are were ten dollars and now eight dollars tend to sell a lot more. So it became incredibly powerful. But that would be one where we gave the team a call. Cool. The second one was we used to have a toy sale. Oh yeah. Um, most peculiar event actually, this was this was in the business before I joined honestly obviously somebody's brainchild from, from many years ago. So this was the July toy sale where we would put a lot of stuff on lay-by and then about well, a big percentage of those products wouldn't be picked up at Christmas. So you'd end up with this highly loss-making event. Lots and lots of sales. If you, I don't know if you remember, this is when people used to rock up at midnight for the start of the toy sale in in, uh, in July. Yeah. <laughs> she's particularly rude. Why are you buying your kids toys in July? I don't know about you. I can never predict in July what my kids wanted for Christmas. That's right. <laughs> So lots of sales, no profit, and lots of market share. So you look at it through those lenses, like how painful is it to get rid of that? So we decided to get rid of it. And the team who were working at the time, we said, okay, so if we're going to get rid of the toy sale, our everyday toy offer, we're not going to be able to match those sales in that week. It's impossible. But what we can do is we can lift our sales in every other week by having a fundamentally better offer. So let's improve the core offer and we'll take out this piece. Now your job is to improve the core offer. And and the team, again, did an amazing job. Of, of figuring out how to create a better a better offer and our own brand's gone from strength to strength. More than 60% of our toys are toy sales in our k up product. Um, Anco, which is our own brand, is the biggest toy brand in the market, of any toy brand, not just in our store, but in the market in total. So, you anyway, two, know, two examples where, you know, you, you basically give the, the team permission to take a big step because they know they're supported, uh, but equally they know what their job is in the process.
0: And just on that, Ian, are you surprised who actually steps up and who doesn't step up?
1: Yes, <laughs> I hadn't actually thought of it through that lens, but yes, yes. It's quite addictive. You know, once people make some of those big steps, they they get really, um, they get emboldened, right? Because if I can make, because it, it's a bit like if I've just done a massive step, taking a medium step doesn't seem that big anymore. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so it sort of resets people's perspectives, and we've seen so many of our leaders throughout the different levels of our organisation just, you know, get more comfortable with change after making some of those big steps. And you're right, equally, it's paralyzing for some.
0: Yeah, I knew a CEO in the past who was very surprised by the people that he had around him at the time weren't willing to step up. And yet he was going to territory he'd never been into before and knew it was a risk. But like yourself, had thought it through, balanced decision and came to the outcome. Yeah. And some just said, I just, I can't go with you, unfortunately. And he was quite surprised by that thinking, by, by, you know, experienced, qualified people you think could do it in their sleep.
1: It's interesting, isn't it? One of the thought processes I have is if whenever something doesn't work out in the way that I would have liked, my thought process is I've got what I've asked for.
0: Interesting. Okay.
1: It's incredibly empowering because you never feel powerless, right? Because in any situation, you feel like, well, okay, well, this is some, something has gone wrong in our organization. Somebody did something I didn't want them to do or something didn't happen I would have liked to have happened. Somehow I've asked for that. What is it I've done that's meant that someone wasn't willing to take that risk? What was it about the environment, about the, the way that we communicated the objectives or the parameters or, or our expectations that meant that it was interpreted incorrectly? And if I finally take that lens, it gives you a different perspective and you can generally find a way to get more of the population engaged there is always going to be a slither, but I think the number of people that really don't get it in the end is pretty small. My guess is it's 10% or less. Um, but what you need is, it's like finding the key to unlock the uh, the code so that people can feel empowered and accountable.
0: What are you asking in terms of leadership today compared to, say, 10 years ago? Because the game's changed.
1: Yeah, it has. I actually worry about this. I think the role of the CEO is so difficult. Um, I'm not saying that. It. it sounds funny but you say that. I think I'm, I'm fortunate because I've been in the role and I've been learning these new things. I've needed to learn on the journey. The people who come into the role now need to do that from a standing start. As we talked about, I thought I was ready going from COO to CEO or to MD, but I still found that was a big step, and that step's bigger now than it was then. So, uh, so I think it is. I think it is a challenge. I think the expectation on business leaders is incredibly high. Even the concepts sort of you know social license to operate. Yeah. I mean, if you'd have used those words ten years ago, nobody would have understood what it meant. Mm. <laughs> now, Absolutely. now the expectations, you know, we need to be, we need to have opinions on many things in the market these days, which are well beyond the sphere of selling t-shirts and selling plates and selling toys.
0: Someone put the question, well, should you? You're a CEO. Do I need to hear what your thoughts are on social injustice or justice? I'm not sure the answer is, but yeah, there's you, arguments either way.
1: You look at some of the trust indexes that are out there and number one corporates are right up, right up the top of the most trusted organizations within Australia, and we you go further into that, for the team members that work for those organisations, even more so. So I think when you see CEOs talk, and certainly when I talk on topics, I'm always thinking about my team, because it could be that the message is as much to my team as it is to the broader market, and it's a topic that I think is important for us as an organisation, or it's important for my team that they know what I believe around this topic. And because we've got 50,000 people, a lot of whom are, you know, it's not the thing they wake up and dream about every day is their career at Kmart. They've they've got a job to earn some money because they've got other things going on in their life, whether they're still at school, whether they're at uni, whether they're at another life stage. And so if I can communicate to them through the media, it's pretty effective. Most people like reading about the business they work for, Mm -hmm. whether it's uh, in the old-fashioned newspapers or online news, Um, more so than they like reading a corporate comms.
0: Do you think leaders – and this is a tricky one, it's more philosophical, are really fulfilling the duty of care to those coming in and building their careers. If you look back when you started out all those years ago, you had someone been around the block, took you under the wing and brought you through. And I was out last evening having a chat with a number of people who's got kids, left university. People aren't coming in a lot. They've got no guidance. They're doing okay, but they could be doing a lot better. And this is parents saying this. So where's the duty of care from leaders in the country? Maybe I'm, I'm, yeah. that's one strong argument versus oh It's okay, little Johnny, and little Mary can sit at home and, and work from home. But you know, then there's other things couldn't There could be mental challenges down the path. We I mean, we don't seem to be tackling that discussion too well. I don't think, but I'm interested. in what do you got? Fifty thousand plus people. It's a big role. But you know, what is the duty of care there when you're bringing people in to build their career, yeah. help them get the career in the right way?
1: <laughs> I think it's a. I think it's a really good question. I think the. I think it's a couple of things around a couple of things around it. First of all, I think expectations have changed. You know, I think uh, you know, when when I started my career, when you went to an employer, the question you did generally didn't ask, what are you gonna do for me, employer? It wasn't not how you would approach it. <laughs> That's right. It wasn't it was pretty much what can I you know, how do I how do I come in here and start at the bottom and work my way up? And like most people, I yeah, you but know, exactly the same, right? I was I a photocopying and coffee boy for the first 6, 12 months that I got into the accounting firm and you learn where the files were and learn how to do, the, do all the basics on the way through. I think there's, the expectation gap is quite different now. The kids coming through from from school and from uni, they're just so much wiser. Right? They've got so much more access to information and so their expectations are so much higher. So I think the game has fundamentally changed around what is, what do we need to do to bring people onto our business and to help grow and develop. So I'd say the first thing is the environment's shifted dramatically. Uh, we have to be good at that. So in in our model, we're one of the biggest employers of juniors in the country. So ourselves and one of the bigger fast food chains, I'll show you, figure out who that is, is that we are the the two and we see ourselves we've got a role in life. We've got a role in the community and our role in the community is to help first jobbers. So the, the kids coming into the job market for the first time start to get their head around the basics of earning money and starting to learn life. It's a, it's a mm-hmm. bit like, you know, you, you go to school to learn a whole bunch of stuff, come for a job in, in Kmart, and we'll teach you the basics of having a job, of needing to be on time, of, of needing to present yourself, of needing to be present when you're in the role. We'll give you, you know, training modules and we'll help you with different situations and how to manage customers, how to do technical tasks, like manage registers and, and other things. So we'll do all of those things. But really what we're doing is we, we're giving you the foundations of what it's like to work for a living. For me, that's actually... It's a very simple thing, but as a parent, you know, my older daughter's just about to come out of uni and my younger ones just started started her first casual job. You know, it feels, it feels good when, you know, your kids are, you know how to wait on tables or, or, or fill shelves. Maybe they do that all their lives, maybe they don't. But learning to understand the value of money and the importance of working for an employer and, and what's expected of you from an early age, I think is really helpful.
0: All right, well, if I put up the middle management, in, in terms of productivity... When I'm having chats with chief execs and they close the door, they're all saying productivity is nowhere near what it was pre-COVID. And I'm caught in a catch-22 duty of care, one to those people who want to be productive and have a good income. I have a duty of care to my shareholders and my key stakeholders. And I'm sitting here and I know productivity is not up. or well, there's challenges around it. Now, it's not me saying it. It's been provided. Are you facing similar challenges in that, in that regard? And is that another conversation? Bearing in mind, we are coming into a potentially some difficult times. Out of us we might not be recession but it's going to be a bit of a slowdown potentially
1: i think we're in a different position to a lot of businesses you know our mission is to remove cost out of our system so that we can give it back to customers and, I and, actually, and, it's, and it's, it's so ingrained in who we are so the productivity conversation never ever goes away and so we've never taken the foot off the gas on that so I, I think we're probably the nature of our business we're less exposed to that than some i'd say the second piece where it is playing out though is in technology you know, you talk about how do we reinvent. Well, we need to become a digital business, and we figured that out a number of years ago because, you know, we're up against the uh, the Amazons and the Googles yeah, about that. Yeah, yep. of the world who have, you know, this this incredible technology, and they're doing it through tech where we, we do it through people. Now, we're never going to go to the same technology levels as some of those organizations. It's not who we are, but there's a whole bunch of stuff that technology can do to a much higher standard than we can ourselves, and it can complement and amplify the capability of our team members. So we've been investing in that for a number of years now, probably about five years we've been on that journey, and, and particularly through COVID, we accelerated our investment in digital. And so what we've done there is we've got the early stage investment, and not surprisingly, you invest early in something like that, and the returns you get are modest, because you've got to put in foundations, like a, like you're building a house, you sort of got to put in the plumbing, you've got to put in the foundation elements before you can start building the you know the beautiful rooms and so on. So you've got the same thing in tech we've got to build out the tech stack, we've got to build out the, the data assets that we need and then we've got to get good at using it. <laughs> so even if you've got we've got all the right technology and you've got the right data, you have still got to have the right operating model that enables you to realize the value on the way through. So I'd say the pieces on our mind relative to this topic is okay we're, we're well into the journey. we've got some really good assets. Now we've got our ability to really realise the value. So value realisation from us from our technology investments is very high on our list. That's something we're very, very focused on. We've got some pretty amazing stuff. I mean, one of the the ones we talked about a few times is we've got this uh, robot, Tori. Yeah. So Tori goes around our stores every night and scans all our apparel products and lets us know exactly where our products are by location. So it's a daily stock take. Our traditional approach is an annual stock take. Yeah, right, yeah. So this is do we need more or less team members because we've got a daily stock take? This is exactly the same number of team members. This technology is not about replacing team members. This technology is about giving the team members good data. And so then we can help team members say, you know what, we're running out of size tens of, of this shirt. Can you go get one out of the back and put it on show so that it's available for the customer? We could never do that in the past because our, our data was too inaccurate. So lots of things where we've got these these new capabilities to really enhance what our teams can do.
0: Just building on that, Ian, over the next five, 10 years, what are we expecting in terms of I guess the customer experience. If you want to use that language, looking forward in retail or yourselves.
1: Yeah, I, I think a revolution. I think fundamentally different. So the the blend between online and offline, or online and stores, is just going to it's just going to tighten and tighten and tighten. So the uh, you know the the proposition that we have with our consumers is they engage with us when they want to engage with us. And you know we've all got phones, right? So everyone, it's amazing now, isn't it? If you think about something before you know it, your hands in your pocket or your hands in your in your bag to whip out the phone, and you've you know you're doing whatever you're doing. And um, on the way through, so people are engaging with us at incredible levels. So we we need to make sure we've got the right content. So I think we've gone to the days of just saying, you know, yeah, there's a plate for two dollars. Would you like it? To actually, what do I buy with this plate? How do I make this plate look good with in my home? And so this is where like, things like social content, I think, is going to become increasingly important and, and making that available to customers in a way that they feel yeah, that's helpful to me, I think will be really useful. So I think you'll see a lot more immersion in the apps of retailers, particularly the big ones like us, so that they're, they're really useful places for customers. If we get it wrong, then it will be like, I can't find the product, you just put a bunch of rubbish in my face, which I don't want. So this isn't about advertising. This isn't about trying to trying to find another economic model. It's trying to actually engage more intensely with our customers in a way that really works for them. And that needs to translate in store because at the moment, you know, you go from this very personalized environment online where we can, you know, we can be surfacing the products which are relevant to you because you told us who you are, because we know what you bought before, and then you go into store and it's a one-size-fits-all. <laughs> There's going to be an adaptation in store where we find ways to bring that feeling of we know you and we can, we can help you find the things you're looking for more easily just to make the whole shopping experience smoother and easier and nicer. So this isn't some sort of horrible big brother invasion of your privacy thing. We just want to make it easy, so easy for customers. They can find what they want. It's an enjoyable experience and they, they want to come back.
0: And the power of marketing or power of engagement and how you go about it, you talk social, social media there, that's, that's evolved, hasn't it, dramatically in the last, again, yeah. 10, 15 years, from direct marketing through to, as you say, coming through then giving me advice, et cetera. The investment and the effort in that area, I would have thought it's absolutely enormous.
1: Yeah. No, it, it is. It is. But the thing I'd say is you've got to think back to who you are and know what you're good at as well. So one of the things I've always thought is you've got, you've got the tech companies we use language, ruthless logic, right? The ruthless logic, the elimination of friction, logical, rational, but not a lot of human connection, if I was to be harsh. Yes, yes. And then you've got brands, right? Let's go to some of the more traditional brands, including us. Yep. We've got human connection. And our marketers over the years have done a, a lot to try and make, make our customers feel like we get you, right? We and we understand you. And, and then we get this relationship come back and, you know, I've stood in Kmart stores, particularly in home, and listened to customers, and you get an outpouring of emotion because they they absolutely love it. You know, finding something which they can afford, which they feel is going to make their home look better, makes them feel good, and then they get that association with the brand, and you see it. You see it on social media. You know, we come up in one of the most loved brands, surveys. We're, we're normally in the top five within Australia, depending upon which, which survey it is. It's super powerful. Yeah. So I think the future is blending the two. So if I was a tech company, I'd be trying to figure out how to become more human. And if I'm a brand as I am, I'm trying to figure out, yeah, but how do I, how do I make it as efficient? How do I make it as frictionless without losing our personality, without losing the, our humanity in the way that we connect with our, with our customers? So then you go back and say, well, how does that translate to the marketing then? Yeah. Some of the stuff's still really important. We still want to do brand marketing. We still want customers to see imagery. Now, maybe the image is on YouTube and not on TV. It's still video. And actually, YouTube gives you a whole bunch of different avenues to connect with customers in different forms of video than we could do in a 50-second or a 30-second or a 60-second TV ad in the past. And then, of course, you've got to go to the other side of the equation. You've got to get good at performance marketing because you're going to get an actual amount of traffic, but there's going to be a business case which says it's worth me spending some money on, performance marketing to bring customers in and then you've got to get good at figuring out well, what's the right mass for that is it a transaction basis is it a customer lifetime value is it an acquisition lens is it a retention lens so i think we're on a good journey on, on trying to figure that out the key for us though is just not forget who we are we're not trying to be the next tech company what we're trying to be is we're trying to be the, the next evolution of kmart and, and keep the best of who we were in this next reinvention but bring this technology
0: capability to amplify us even further And if you're going to share some wisdom to those who are close to making their next move to become a managing director or a CEO, what's been, I don't know, maybe one or two things which really struck you or stood out for you, which maybe we just were not (laughs) anticipating.
1: I'd say, first of all, paranoia is your friend. I know that sounds a little dark. (laughs) But the more you anticipate what can go wrong, the more you can figure out what you need to do up front. And uh, and I think when you look at it from a development, I mean anybody who's on the door on the knocking on the door of becoming a CEO has clearly been super successful. Right. And they've 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 found ways to perform to a high standard to be in that consideration set. So they're clearly kind of very, very capable people to get to that position. Maybe there's the odd one that isn't, but let's say on average, right, that's certainly the case. Yeah. Um you've still got so many holes. Right. There's so many things you don't know. So it's constantly having this view about, okay, well, I might be good at these things. What else do I not know? So if I think about my previous boss of Guy Russo, he and I are very different leaders. Uh, he, he tackles things in a very different way, but super successful in the way that he does it. And so one of his great strengths was his ability to connect and communicate with large populations of people. He was extraordinarily good at it. And so, when I came into the role, I knew that was a gap for me. because And so, I had two choices. I could either try and replicate what Guy did, which would mean I was a second-rate version of Guy, which wouldn't be great for the organization, or I find the way that I can do it in my way that gets the same outcome. But what it told me was there's something I need to be good at here, which unless I can find a way to figure that out, it's going to be a struggle. So, as an example, when I first got into the role, I really made it a mission to be really good at the store visit. Oh, right. Yeah. Now, whether, whether, <laughs> uh, I, I, but as soon as I say that, I wonder what some of the store managers would say, <laughs> whether I got that right or not. <laughs> but anyway, so I, I spent in the first three months, I made it a mission to get, I wanted to get to every zone in the country. So each state has zones. So every zone, I wanted to spend time with every zone manager and basically get to all the stores. And I wanted to figure out how do I do a really good visit? That's my visit. That's sort of, that's the way I do it. Yeah. Anyway, I went. I went through that, and I tried a few things out. And you know what? Some didn't work. I, I came out of some of the visits thinking that was a disaster. You know, I didn't. I didn't get that right. And then after a while, I, I figured it out. I figured out. You know what? The, the visits are about. The visits are not all about me. The visits are about the team. This is the MD of the organization who's turning up, and this is a big day for a lot of the store teams because it might be that they see the managing director once every five years. Yeah. When you've got that many stores, you yeah. just don't get to the store frequently. So if you walk out of that store visit with the team feeling bad, you've got to wait five years to make them feel better.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> that doesn't make for high performance. And so, so I came out of it thinking, you know what, I've got to make the team feel good about what they do because they have an incredibly important job of what they're doing every day. Equally, I've got to learn. Go back to why, you know, one of my missions in the job is I've got to keep on learning and understanding what's happening. So I just made it my mission to make them feel valued and learn. And once I had that clarity, then I found that I got the engagement. Uh, it's a different form of engagement because we were like an in conversation yeah. versus a, a you know a much more um, you know a, a, an emotional connection if you like
0: yeah
1: uh, but it still left a lasting impression and it still had value so uh, so going back to this question around how do you get ready or when do you know if you're ready you're never ready we just have this paranoia about where the gaps are as a leader and uh, and then then i think you can you can put yourself in the best position you possibly can to make a go of it when you get into the role
0: are you accessible as a leader? Do I hear that about you? Or
1: Yes, yes, yes and no. I'd say now I've become a group managing director versus a managing director of a business. Yeah. And one of the things I didn't anticipate when I got into the managing director job was actually how much of the time is not within my control. Yeah. I had more time when I was the chief operating officer, which I didn't anticipate. I had more flexibility about choosing what I did when. But, you know, you sort of have to do results calls. You sort of have to do board meetings. <laughs> <laughs> Yes there's quite a lot of, there's quite a lot of those things which just come up, which means that you' don't have to be really ruthless with time. Yeah. and I, I am so ruthless with time now because otherwise I, I would just not go to bed. I'd not see my family and I'd have no time for myself and I'd end up being an awful managing director. and it'd be 50,000 people with all the offices and all the stores. Do I feel like I'm getting to all of them enough? Absolutely not. I, I don't. but what I now have is I have awesome leaders running these businesses. Who can? Yeah. So to a degree, I've had to delegate some of that accessibility to other leaders just because of the nature of the role that I'm now in. But uh, but I, I always encourage my team, call me, text me, email me. If there's anything on your mind, you know, feel free to make contact. And where I sit in the office, when I'm in, in the Kmart office in Mulgrave is on level three. You come out of the lifts and there's a pod right outside of the lifts, that's where I sit, like uh, right, right on the main walkway. It's a nightmare for doing work because <laughs> <laughs> then it's like, oh, hello, 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 hello. hello. But, it, but it, doesn't, it doesn't mean that when I'm around and in the office, uh, which is not not as often as I'd like either, yep. uh, it does mean that, that people can connect. I think feeling like people people can connect with you is important. A business like ours, we're, normal, we're ordinary people trying to run a big business. And so keeping connected at a human level is important.
0: So what's the message, Ian? Ultimately, it's all about people, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I think a couple of things. If I if I look at it through the CEO lens or the MD lens, and and once you get to a certain scale, your job is really t- my job is two things. You've got to have the right strategy. We, is the company focused on the right topics? Are, are the teams, the leaders focused on the right questions? So there is without doubt, I'll be focused on the right stuff. I get the privilege of seeing so much external information because I am the ambassador for the business in so many external forums yeah. so I generally get a lens on the market or on the competitive landscape which perhaps others do not I've got to make sure I bring that in and that informs the strategy then it's people 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 because I can't do it I can't do all the detail around it and for for most of us who came up through a technical discipline versus a store discipline yeah. um, in our business you you got promoted by being good at something technical and then you so then you manage one person. And the way you manage them was by telling them exactly what to do. And then you've got a team of people and then you pretty much told them what to do as well. At some point, it changes. And you've actually got to think about, well, how do I create the right framework? How do I create the right culture? How do I create the right parameters? How do I create the right support networks? How do I create the right development in order that we we give each of these leaders and each of these teams every ability to take accountability and uh, and to do an excellent job? So how much of my job's people, 60%,
0: 70%. In three, four years' time, five years' time, depending on what you've got to present, as you say, to the board, you're at $10 billion coming up to those numbers. What's it going to be in three and five years' time?
1: Yeah, I, I'm scared to put a number out there in case I get held to it by my boss. Yep. <laughs> but, uh, you, you know, we've been growing consistently for a long period of time. I see so much opportunity mm-hmm. for our business, uh, there's opportunity within Australia and New Zealand, which we're already a significant market share. There's even bigger opportunity globally. Okay. So, uh, you know, think about we, we develop these products. We're a product company as much as we are a retailer. 85% of what we sell is now our own developed product. And then we compete against the world's retailers in Australia and New Zealand. You know, so you think about how many of the global retailers participate in our markets, and yet we're only offering it to 30 million people. And how many billions exist in the globe? So, the, you know, you stand back and look at that and you say there's got to be, we've got to figure out how to get this product to other customers around the world. So, we started on that journey. We're going to open up in uh, with a retailer in Canada in March yeah. of this month, we're in March, so uh, later this month. Yeah. That's going to be quite a, quite a meaningful anchor offer that gets into that market. We've been speaking with retailers in Europe in the last three months, again, to bring our product to the European markets, whether it's in the UK, France, or, or other European uh, countries. Yeah. And I think there's going to be opportunities elsewhere. So if I look at it through that lens, you know, why can't this number be 20 billion in five or 10 years' time? We have the offer, we have the product, we have the opportunity. It's now up to us to figure out the how.
0: It's exciting, isn't
1: it? It is. Yeah, I agree.
0: When you finally call it a day, Ian, and get up from that little pod and say, <laughs> Got to go, thanks for all the fun, what's going to be the legacy?
1: I think the first thing when I came into the role, I think you touched on this question earlier. You know, when I came in, our growth was my mission. We had grown profit as a company. We'd gone from being an unprofitable business to a profitable one. But our revenue growth hadn't been that much. It was pretty modest. And so a lot of the story in the business at the time was turnaround. And my mission was to make this a growth business. So we changed all the language internally to growth on the way through. And you can tell we've, we've, we've achieved that in so far in that we doubled the size of the business. Yeah. And it's here a number of like $4 billion of sales in the Australian market. It's quite a lot of extra sales to go find. My mission when I when I hang up my boots is the growth agenda remains. Okay. You know, this cannot be seen as a mature business that's done really well, but, you know, it's at its peak. And, you know, whilst Ian was there, it was great, but you know what? This is going to be a plateau now. Uh, that would be a fail for me. So my mission whenever I hang up my boots is the, the trajectory and the opportunity is really clear and the opportunity for the business to go to even greater heights. And this actually was just a platform for the next level of growth. That would be the legacy I'd love to leave
0: and then if you're looking back at their young gentleman with the tennis racket in his hand giving it his best shot what advice would you give him now
1: yeah don't stress too much when you get the wrong job <laughs> <laughs> so, it's, funny, it's funny i sorry i never thought i was that rash but uh, when i look back on it i realise i probably was on the way through the one the one thing i would constantly constantly give advice around is learn 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 and if you're young in your career and you're not learning fast enough like it should be vertical I feel like I'm learning more now than I ever have, so my learning curve is still like that, right? It's, and you see people get into roles and they start to plateau. It's like get out of there, <laughs> go, go do go do something else because you know you you know there's so much to figure out and it's fun to figure it out. Right? It's it's enjoyable, you know. It's I know I feel super privileged and fortunate to have had the career that I've had, and clearly I've had ups and downs. I've been made redundant twice on the journey and you know, fired a couple of times. So it's not like it's always going to be smooth sailing um, on the way through, but, you know, opportunities come along and, you know, you keep rocking up, sooner or later you get lucky and someone took a chance on me to put me into Officeworks. Yeah. As we told earlier, into a role where, you know, as we talked about, I had two out of the three ingredients. You know, those things happen and you've got to jump and take the risk. Equally, I could have said, you know, that no retail. Yeah. Maybe this is the wrong role for me. Maybe this won't work out. Maybe I won't take that step. So I I would encourage people to take risks. It's never as brave as you think it is when you are taking that risk because if it goes wrong, you take the next kick and you get the next job. And yeah, and see where the world takes you.
0: On that, Ian, thanks very much for joining us today.
1: No, thanks very enjoyed chatting.
0: You've been listening to No Limitations.